Welcome to VLGA Connect. My name is Catherine Arndt and I'm the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. I hope you enjoy today's Connect episode brought to you by the VLGA, the national broadcaster on all things local government. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome once again to TGU, the weekly panel discussion about all the news and views from around the world of local government, brought to you from VLGA Connect and proudly sponsored by Hunt and Hunt Lawyers. And let me say hello, firstly, to Julie Reid, who's back with us on the panel this week. Hi, Julie. Hi, Chris. Hi, Tony. Great to be back with you today. Lovely to see you again. And Tony Rowdick, of course, from Hunt and Hunt Lawyers, uh, joins us as well. Tony, how's your week been? Been good, been good, been on the been on the road a bit with um, new council or inductions, but, um, Chris and Julie, but been fun. And we might talk a little bit about that in just a moment, Tony, if if you don't mind. I want to start though this week with what I think is 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 really a massive story out of South Australia that's broken overnight as we uh, record this where uh, as many as 46 councillors, and I understand four mayors are included in this number, uh, are about to be declared uh, out of office, uh, basically because they've failed to submit a gift disclosure return in time. Um, Tony, you mentioned to me before we recorded that you saw this and thought, oh, this will just be a procedural thing that'll get sorted. But it looks like uh, there's going to be elections to fill vacant positions in this case. Yeah, I thought it might have been a shot over the bow in through the media um, by the um, the authority in South Australia to get, you know, um, lots and lots of councillors, um, probably with the prompting of their CEOs, filling out disclosure forms. But no, it seems that, um, you know, that that um, boat sailed and, um, and, and the deadline has passed, mm-hmm. despite, I should say, lots of notices and warning, it would appear. These 12, 12 uh, well, the minister says there were 12 reminders to uh, all those candidates uh, during the election period. And there was, we should say, a change, as I understand, to the procedure, whereas up until this election, the CEO of each council had gathered those returns and submitted them. But it's now the responsibility of the individual to submit them. And some have suggested that might have been a factor in this. Uh, that would make sense if they're all experienced and returned uh, councillors, I guess, but still, the lesson here is to understand the obligations very, very clearly going in, isn't it? it does sound like an onerous outcome, but then you think that in South Australia next election cycle, um, there'll be few councillors who who, who, yeah. who who miss this, um, given given the implications this time around. Uh, and I think, Chris, that there's you know there's a really clear message in this. I know that uh, we've had issues of the same sort in Victoria in terms of submission of of disclosures. Um, uh, So I think think it's it's definitely a warning. It's definitely a, um, you know, let's make everybody aware how important this issue is because if you don't, um, if you don't adhere to it, then there's going to be ramifications. And uh, no doubt Victoria will be looking very closely at this particular issue. It brings back unpleasant memories for me, uh, Julie and and Tony, uh, of a time where you you might recall after a particular election cycle, a few councils were caught up in a change to the way the, I think it was the oath or the affirmation of office was uh, delivered or recorded. And it looked like uh, a lot of councils were going to be out of office, but the the, uh, the government enacted a change to the legislation 
to to deal with that issue. Um, clearly, there's no appetite for doing that by the looks of it in uh, in South Australia. But I was in the middle of of that. I'm I'm sorry to say, and it was a pretty harrowing time. I'm not sure whether you remember any of that, but uh, I'm forever indebted to the local member at the moment who uh, who injected some common sense into that whole discussion. But anyway, uh, so we'll keep an eye on that. But it looks like elections for about 46 elected members are going to be happening pending appeal. So there's an appeal process. And I think they've said there'll be about a month's delay while any appeals to the South Australian Civil and Administrative Tribunal play out. Um, and that's, I guess, to catch extenuating circumstances that might apply for some of those individuals that the tribunal might uh, look favourably upon. So I suspect we'll be coming back to it. Yeah, I suspect it's going to be quite a long time if there's an appeal process um, and yeah. whether or not there's individual appeals for each of those councillors, I suspect that is the case. So uh, it could be months before we hear the outcome of that. That'll be, that'll be an interesting one uh, to watch. Of course, there are a few South Australian councils conducting second elections or by-elections because they had insufficient uh, nominations to fill uh, some positions. So elections are going to be around for a little while by the looks of it at the local government level in South Australia, at least for the next uh, few months. So in Victoria, perhaps the big story uh, this week has been the, the naming of the two monitors that have been appointed to the city of Greater Geelong. Uh, people will recall... A couple of weeks ago, the minister said uh, she had the intention of appointing monitors to oversee the CEO uh, employment process, which we understood was getting to the pointy end. But clearly, there's been a, a, a pause there while these monitors come in, Prue Digby and Peter Dorling. And Julie, you picked up on the point, I think, when we first discussed this. There seemed to be a hint of a, of a, of a longer agenda there. And that's borne out, I think, by the fact that the two monitors have been appointed for 12 months. Normally, normally they start at about either three or six months and then they review that at the end of that period. They go back and they report to the minister on what's going on and then the minister decides whether or not um, uh, she's going to extend the period. So obviously in this case, they've gone, okay, there's a need for a bit longer than three or six months. So there are obviously some issues there which um, have not come to light yet. But interesting, interesting selection. Um, obviously, Prue's very well versed with uh, being a monitor and did a great job down at South Gippsland. Peter, I don't know so much, but Peter obviously has um, is no stranger to that part of the world. Uh, really knows that. Um, really knows Geelong Council well. Uh, knows um, Geelong really well as well. So no stranger to the council or the area, which I think uh, sounds like a, a great fit. Yes, so he was he was one of the administrators when that council was under administration a few years back yep. now, and was a monitor post that period as well. I'm not sure if you've come across or worked with uh, Peter Tony, but no real surprises, I think, in the calibre of the appointments there. No, no, and I think um, well, at least according to media articles, I think Geelong advertised that it shed some light on perhaps some of the reasoning of the government in terms of the appointment. Um, yeah. It appears that there was um, um, information received uh, coming from council, be that from a council officer or a councillor, that an allegation that the names of some of the CEO candidates had been uh, shared beyond the um, the recruitment committee. At least that's what the media report says. Yes. I don't know if that's true. An but, unnamed um, source, we should say, was quoted yes. uh, as saying that to the advertiser. Yeah. Yeah, so we, which would be absolutely concerning and you can understand why the government might feel the need to step in with some monitors. 
Yeah, so it sort of comes back to something we've discussed earlier too, uh, with this uh, propensity to appoint monitors where there are issues, and and we've talked about the, uh, I think what people welcome is a proactive nature in making those appointments. Question is always going to be: Are there enough monitors with suitable experience and skills to to fill those positions? We've got a few in place at the moment, but here's an example where Prue's just finished one at South Gippsland and has now gone into uh, to the Geelong role. So it remains to be seen, I think, where the, the, the future bank of monitors is going to be populated from. Yeah, that's interesting, Chris. And I think um, I think LGV are certainly on top of who's around, who's available, um, and, you know, obviously looking for the right fit for the right councils. Yes. So, um, yeah, look, I've, I've got every confidence in, in the fact that they're, you know, collecting names as we speak, probably, of those mm. people that are available. One thing that's crossed my mind a couple of times is um, what it must be feeling like to be a candidate in the middle of this process. The the uncertainty uh, that uh, is is clearly now attached to the process. Do you do you reckon if you were in the middle of that process, you'd be second guessing whether you wanted to remain in it? I know it's speculation, but if it was you, Julie, what would you be thinking? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Chris. And I was thinking. Um, off the top of my head that, um, you know, going in and you know that there's a monitor that's going to be there, would you see that as, you know, or monitors in this case, would you see that as a positive thing or a negative thing? You know, some some councils have had the view, well, they're not really wanting a proactive monitor because it sends the wrong signal to the community and to the sector that maybe there's some issues there. So I think I would be asking lots of questions about what's going on and trying to dig and find out, you know, what, yeah. you know, why the monitors have been appointed in their view and, and what's going on there. But, yeah, it might make me a bit nervous. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm with you there, uh, mm. Julie. Uh, let's move on. As, as with our first story, I'm sure it's not the last time that one will uh, make the list for discussion. So, Tony, you've been in Brimbank where there's a, a new councillor and uh, a, a, a young councillor, the latest in what's a growing list of, of young people. When I say young, I think 21? There's 21 um, yeah. councillor Tom O'Reilly there at Brimbank. Um and um, yeah, one of our newest councillors. Um, interesting guy. Grew up in in Brimbank of um, Maltese Irish parentage heritage. So you know, like a lot of people in that Brimbank area um, from that um, multicultural background. Um, former youth councillor, so served twice on the Brimbank Youth Council. So you know, nice to see um, that progression through now. Um, onto the, um, you know, the, the, the full council. Um, interestingly, um, an identical twin, uh, Thomas, um, or Tom and, and his, his brother, Christopher, actually ran for council as well last um, election. So the two brothers are initially unsuccessful, but on count back, um, congratulations to Tom who was elected. And I got to spend a bit of time with, um, with Tom on Wednesday, doing some induction training. He, like his twin brother, is a primary school teaching student um, and uh, is combining that with um, um, now with um, being a councillor at Brimbank. So good luck to him. That's a, that's a fabulous story, Tony. What is your sense, without saying too much about Thomas himself, uh, of that, that pathway of being involved in youth council, preparing someone for understanding the processes of local government is is that a real plus in this case? Do you think? 
Well, I think it's a head start. I agree it's a head start. And, and I know that um, councils have, have sort of um, wondered about this youth council um, process at times. Some councils have tried it and, and, and felt it hadn't worked. Um, but certainly in this case, in terms of that, you know, perhaps some leadership training exposure to this that element of civics and that, um, it certainly um, seemed to light a spark for, um, for, for, for Thomas O'Reilly and, um, and has, um, you know, encouraged his interest in, in, in Brimbank Council and um, all, all strength to him. I think it's a, been a great process and, um, and I think it will just um, improve. Yeah, it, it's great for Brimbank to um, have another young councillor on board. Yeah, so they've got a couple, of course, uh, with uh, the previous mayor Jasmine Nguyen um, being Correct. in that that batch. I think we can say of the younger councillors around the yeah, state. Chris, I'm, I'm really pleased to see young people coming through. You know, we've seen young councillors in other um, other municipalities as well, um, and great programs as well. When I was working at Kingston, there was a junior mayor program, which was fantastic, which, you know, um, gave the opportunity for someone um, at that junior age of sort of, um, you know, around about sort of between 10 and 12, something like that, to come in and shadow the mayor for a year to uh, go to events to understand a little bit more about local government so you know these are the leaders of the future that we should be nurturing and uh, you know great to see those kind of um, you know youth programs as well as things like the junior mayor. All right what's next on the list uh, the local government inspectorate in Victoria has uh, released its annual report for the last financial year so it's getting a little bit dated in terms of, of time but there's an interesting story here uh tony i'll ask you firstly in terms of the numbers that were jumping out at you yeah yeah certainly um over 200 investigations um in relation to 300 odd allegations um it's interesting that um um about 130 warnings were issued by the inspectorate nearly all interestingly for election related matters and i think that um, um in, including can i say in relation to the failure to complete um, campaign donation returns. So we remember we started off talking about the onerous implications there in South Australia for a failure to complete those returns. Um, um, it, it's not a problem that's unique to South Australia. Clearly, um, we've had an issue in Victoria in recent years and the, um, the inspectorate this time around, um, the approach has been to warn um, I believe um, there were also some warnings went out to real estate agents in this regard who were filling out um, election, um, were filling out voting, election voting for landlords, That's for, right. the, for yeah. the real estate agents were actually doing the voting. And again, there were some warnings issued to them. Um, but some otherwise some interesting statistics about where they, their investigations were directed. I don't know if you saw them, Chris and Julie, but um, overwhelmingly conflict of interest, 34% relation to conflict of interest. And then the next one was misuse of position. Um, and um, you know, you know, followed behind by, you know, only at six percent, two percent, um, breaching confidential information and directing council staff at two percent. Right. So, you know, really that conflict of interest piece is really still significant. The councillors at the moment. 
and that breakdown doesn't surprise surprise me. One thing that crossed my mind, and I'm not sure if you've read more detail on this, Tony, um, 203 investigations completed. Silent on how many investigations are still underway, because we know there are a, a, a few matters that have been in train for quite some time. There's been a bit of publicity around some of those. Uh, do we get a sense of 203 completed out of however many that were in train? Uh, no, I, di I didn't pick 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 that up overall. Um, I, I I do I do know that because um, local the local government inspector is just one of the various bodies that, um, if you like, oversee or, or, or mm. regulate um, the sector. Um, IBAC, um, for example, is another. The um, Ombudsman um, is another. Um, and so um, often it's a case of the complaint going to the right organisation. Um, I was struck by the fact that there were zero prosecutions by the inspectorate to date, and maybe in some of those more involved matters that are ongoing that, that they might involve potential prosecutions. Okay, anything particular jumping out at you from that report, Julie? No surprises? Uh, no, no surprises. Um, I never, I was never really privy to, you know, how many investigations were happening at any one time, but I know mm. it was significant. Um, and, uh, you know, for a small a small organisation, yeah. you know, they really do a uh, incredible job with a small amount of uh, resources. So, uh, and, and obviously that's been an issue for councils over a period of time. They've been worried about the lack of resources, maybe at LGV, uh, sorry, at the inspectorate and, um, you know, have certainly, you know, at LGV heard that uh, when I was in the role. But since then, people have also raise concerns about, you know, there needs to be more resources to be able to deal with some of these investigations more quickly as well. Yes, because uh, it's not really helpful to, to anyone when they drag on for, for long periods of time for, That's right. in, in most cases, understandable uh, reasons. But a lot of it comes down to that resourcing, doesn't it? Yeah. So uh, that's there for you to read if you'd like to dig into uh, all things inspectorate from the 21-22 financial year. Um, last week, Tony, we, we talked about what was happening up on the Gold Coast where the Mayor Tom Tate had said uh, he wasn't looking at introducing an acknowledgement of country to their council meetings because he described it as not efficient and he didn't want anything else getting in the way of conducting the business of the council. There's been a little bit of an about face, and this will link to a Victorian story in just a moment. In the last week, he's now saying that at the next Gold Coast Council meeting, he'll raise the matter and consult his fellow councillors. I think there's been quite a bit of pressure brought to bear after those public statements last week. Interesting, as you say, a bit of an about face. And uh, and um, be interesting to see what his councillor colleagues have, have to say about this, but that's... Um, placed the issue firmly you know, on the agenda, can I say, yes. for a conversation amongst the councillors. I don't know how you can back away from it now, given the very public way this is playing out. Um, Julie, how do you not introduce an acknowledgement of the country now and um, make a case that people would accept as being reasonable and, and logical not to do so? I know. Look, it's a... This is a really, a really tough one, and it's really sensitive in the community. It's steeped in tradition. Uh, some of some of um, what we've seen in the past that's brought forward, but it's really, really hard to turn away from something that you've 
you know, started to practice. You have to have pretty good reasons, I think, as to why um, and mm. be able to m- make sure that um, you're going to um, have general acceptance, I think, by the community. Uh, and I think we made the point last week that there was something like uh, 40% or 60%, I forget which way around it was, of, of Queensland councils that do or don't have an acknowledgement of country. So Gold Coast certainly isn't alone. But at least uh, they're having another look and not waiting what was going to be well over 12 months to have the conversation about it. But what that led to in our conversation last week was around the use of council prayers at the start of council meetings, once you start talking about acknowledgements and prayers and value statements, etc. What we didn't know, Tony, at the time we were discussing is that there was a letter that uh, had been uh, uh, put together by 21 Victorian councillors and sent off to the government. This story broke later on the Friday, calling for the government to do something to remove council prayers from being a thing at council meetings in Victoria. Uh, I said almost jokingly that I need to do a bit of a research project to find out which uh, councils do or don't. Um, That might end up being done for me, I think, through this. It's a bit of a Nostradamus about you there, Chris, (laughs) because um, you're absolutely right. We had no idea that this was about to happen. But um, I did see um, that um, that letter that's been submitted, you know, to the Minister, VLGA, MAV, these sort of organisations as well, arguing that um, the Christian prayer at councils being perhaps inconsistent with this um, multicultural, multi-faith diversity of communities and those principles in the Local Government Act. Um, I, I found the article in The Age really interesting. I saw... Um, Two people I know really well at the same council, Ben, your council were, were, were cited at least in there as being on you know, opposite sides of yeah. the argument. Um, Councillor Tom Malikin um, said, look, I'm a practising Catholic, but, you know, I think it's, um, it's exclusionary to, to, to continue with the Christian prayer. His colleague Mark Di Pasquale at, at Banyul, um, I think was quoted as having recently, you know, moved a motion to, to bring the um, prayer back into annual council meetings or at least establish it there. Um, so clearly, um, and, and I know those two are, are, are really good close colleagues on council, there's differences of opinion. Mm. Um, and, and I dare say all, all three panellists here, we've got our opinions on it. Um, I remember when I was, and it's going back to the 1990s and the early noughties when I was um, on council at Nilambik, but we this came up. For us, um, I sort of saw it as an opportunity to um, promote diversity in a different way, and maybe uh, so. So we wrote to all the local um, faith communities, um, not just the Christian ones. So the, the the local mosque, the synagogue, the Buddhist monastery, and we implemented a roster of a revolving prayer, where one of those faith leaders would come in. And, um, and 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 it was a, a moment of reflection and prayer that that, that they would lead. Um, so that was that's an, a, an alternative way. I appreciate that um, that that might pose some issues for non-believers. But you know, I yeah. think there's also instances where, for me, I think in life where we um, we're able to respect something that we don't have a direct. Um, connection to sometimes as well um so you know yeah, I, true. I, 
Well, Chris, I've I seen it effectively done. Sorry, Julie, one, one sec. Um, some councils use their interfaith groups that exist in the community mm -hmm. to come up with a statement, a diversity of values statement, or whatever you like, that is recognising all faiths and uses inclusionary language in the in place of a prayer. Um, but it's it's always an emotive issue. There's, there's usually at least one or two councillors in the group that feel very strongly about it and may not go further because the council group might have the view that unless everyone's in agreement, we're not going to change the status quo. Julie, you've had a similar experience, I think. Yeah, that's right, Chris. And I just wanted to share that, you know, maybe some of the really multicultural councils, like, for example, Greater Dandenong, um, who brought in interface leaders uh, to do the prayer at the start of the meeting um, and rotated that around like what Tony was talking about mm. is a really great idea. It sort of touches then um, uh, all of the, the, the broad um, interfaith across the community. So I think um, something, something for councils maybe to have a look at, uh, how do those really multicultural communities deal with that? Um, I think, again, this is another one that's steeped in tradition and you, we've always done it that way. And so, you know, um, wanting to, some some people wanting to keep it, but then others saying, look, we've moved on from there. We are much more multicultural um, and we need to find something new and different to represent our community. So um, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be a decision locally by the council and my understanding is there's nothing enshrined in legislation that stops them from actually changing what they do. No, that's that's exactly right. It's uh, it's a matter for individual councillors, uh, councils, I think was, was the advice. And I think as we see each electoral cycle run its course and we see councils being made up of groups of people that are more reflective and representative of the diversity of the communities, these types of discussions are going to happen more frequently. That's assuming nothing happens uh, across the board as a result of this, but I can't quite see how that is going to happen. Other yeah, than... I wonder where it will go, yeah. where you draw the line. Um, yeah. You know, councils spend money on Christmas decorations, um, you know, um, yeah. and um, and I can think of it, you know, as someone from a, you know, a Christian background, I understand that, um, but I can also... So if my council... Um, I mean, I live in Whittlesea. If um, they they um, promoted um, the Diwali festival, um, you know, to me that would be a good thing. We have a lot of Hindus in our in our community, and um, and I would I, I would I would think that that was um, appropriate. And they do. I don't you. actually might ne not necessarily share that faith belief. Yes, and, and for the and record, they do do that. And this comes back to as well the issue of the need for um, diversity on council in terms of councillors. Um, you know, there's going to be a move towards more diversity as we as we're um, going forward, and in that more diversity is going to come new ideas and new ways of doing things. And so um, we want to encourage that diversity because it's going to bring broader voices, but it's going to also bring change and that's going to be part of it. All right. Some big issues that we've uh, talked about there. A few news items to, to whip through or get your comments if you wish to make one, but just so people are aware, Greater Shepparton has finally held a deputy mayoral election. This is a second attempt. The first one was in October and there was a hung vote. And the last Deputy Mayor, Councillor Anthony Brophy, who I must declare, uh, we go way back to primary school, basically. Um, Anthony is uh, Deputy Mayor again, 
And uh, I think what's happened there is uh, Kim O'Keefe was running for state parliament, got elected. There was they, we knew there was going to have to be a count back and a new councillor. So they waited for that to, to resolve before they've had a second attempt. So congratulations to Anthony, who was elected deputy mayor this week. In South Australia, a former CEO, and I know you would have looked at this very closely with your legal eyes, uh, Tony, a former CEO has had an unfair dismissal case uh, rejected. Uh, by the courts, um, and he's been ordered to pay costs estimated in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, so pretty costly exercise. And I suspect a bit more detail came out in this than perhaps was being bargained for, Tony. Yeah, I think this was an appeal from the original decision, so an appeal to the South Australian Supreme Court from a right. 2019 decision. And, 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 you know, as a lawyer, um, you know, I'm not a litigator, but as a lawyer, one of the things you, you often are saying to people is, you know, if you want to roll the dice and, and run the appeal, A, can you be, you know, what, what are the consequences is if you look if you lose in terms of costs and um and perhaps more publicity. And um we've certainly seen in the media reports just a um you know a re um publication, if you like, of the reasons for the original dismissal, um, which seemed um pretty scathing, I think. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of things here. One, don't keep um, questionable material on your work email drive. In this case, uh, it's it stated that this person had intimate photographs of himself and a sexual partner, partner on his work email drive. Why? Why? Just just why? There's 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 one reason why uh, you should not. Um, but also, I, I found this really interesting: um, the alleged involvement of the CEO in. Uh, it doesn't say encouraging, but not necessarily uh, discouraging senior members of staff from sending emails that were disparaging about elected members, you know, behaviours that seem to have undermined the, the good working relationship between the council staff and the elected members. I don't know all the detail, none of us here do, but there's not a good look there either with that stuff that's that's come out no, and, and, the, and the thing that sort of resonated with me julie particularly was the chief justice's comment that all of this conduct and i quite fatally compromised the trust and confidence that was critical to the employment relationship i think that's it in a nutshell isn't it yeah chris and look i think these messages are really critical particularly um i was out um at darabin yesterday talking to new staff uh, who are new to local government. I'm doing some training of um, staff that are new to local government and talking to them about, you know, transparency and about everything is available to um, on your work equipment is to be FOIable. Um, you know, please, please don't use that for personal use. Yeah. Don't have anything in there that you feel slightly uncomfortable about. Um, make sure you keep it very, very separate um, and make sure that it's always totally professional because, you know, the, the, the public can get access to any of this information if they want to. So please heed to that. And it was really interesting on the brink of telling them that, that this came out and it was kind of like, well, there you go, you know, an yeah. example of where, you know, you've got to be so careful and so professional in the in yep. your job. Just reinforces that that message, doesn't it, yep. Julie? Yep. Uh, Tony, any particular takeaways for you from this particular case? Look, look, I, I absolutely agree with you about um, the use of um, you know 
publicly provided resources for for you know for private matters and um and and the need to be conscious of that and then i think taking it a step further as julie says um you know the inclination to send a you know a late night email on on you know from the work email address that might be um um you know the the tone of which um in retrospect you might regret um encouraging or you know counselors council officers to to give, just give some pause for thought um in, in in those situations because um you know these are as Julie rightly says, um, there's a record. Um, these things are um, capable of being produced through summons and FOI, and even when they're deleted from your system, they, they're, they're capable of being um, picked up off the hard drive. Yes, uh, I don't think I've ever received an email with a timestamp of 2 a.m. that I've actually thought, oh, that was a nice email. Uh, might just leave that there. Uh, Monsester City Council this week has finalised its uh, feedback after the uh, council elections in Tasmania last year. Of course, there were a few changes introduced, including compulsory voting for the first time. But this caught my eye. The uh, the council is recommending to the government or, or is expected to. They were looking at this draft submission last night, I think, um, limiting the number of terms for mayors. They'd like to see a, I couldn't quite follow this argument. You might uh, get this. They'd like to see two term limits in, uh, applied to mayors where they, they get elected separately to the, 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 the let's say, the run of the mill councillor roles. Um, and they're saying this would be more effective for succession planning. Does that make sense to either of you? I don't know if you can be in favour of something and against it at the same time, but that's where I sort of sit. <laughs> okay. um, that's called, Tony, that's called <laughs> sitting on the fence. <laughs> it probably is, but... Um, so, so I think it is a good thing, generally, for these senior roles um, um, at council, representative roles, to be to be shared around. Um, in in light of also um, which you know what council has what council or has the time, the necessary experience and capacity to be either you know the deputy mayor or the mayor. But I think that um, as a general proposition, um, you know having the same mayor for three, four terms in a row um, it begs the question of succession, um, just another voice, um, another set of views perhaps leading the council. There might be some value in that. But then when it comes to legislating or, you know, regulating and, 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 and prohibiting, um, you know, a, a mayor serving for more than two terms, I just wonder, there may well be circumstances at a particular council where it actually makes sense, mm -hmm. where the other the, the other councillors don't want the role, are unable to fulfil the role for some particular reason, or there's some particular crisis management that's going on at the council that makes sense to have some a level of continuity. So I'm 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 for the principle of um, changing it around regularly as a general proposition, but not really keen on seeing that mandated. So, Tony, does your view change if I was to remind you, and I should have done this at the outset, when we talk about terms in Victoria, they're generally 12-month terms. When yeah. we talk about terms in Tasmania, we're talking, I can't remember whether it's three or four years, but you're talking about, you know, a, a limit of six or eight years for one person being in the role of the mayor. Is that an important distinction? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that puts a different flavour on it. So we're not, we're, we're talking about some, you know, we're, we're talking about a prohibition that is only 
um, comes in in the order of eight years or so after after eight years of service in that role. So, um, yeah, good point, Chris. Um, as we often say, it's done differently in different jurisdictions around the country, and it's always fascinating to me. Julie, do you have a view? Oh, look, I was just going to talk about um, some mayors have natural leadership ability, yeah. and sometimes you've only got one standout in the group that have got those leadership qualities. So why not enable them if they are a good leader and they're doing a good job and the council, um, their councillor colleagues are happy with their performance, then why shouldn't they stay on uh, for a longer period of time? I'm not too sure about the mandate thing. I think it should be really um, open to um, them earning it um, to be able to then, um, you know, earn the vote. But yeah, so that that's where I'm sitting, and I I just I've seen some some mayors with some really great leadership qualities that I think deserve to stay in there for a period of time. As always, we'd love to hear the listeners and the viewers' uh, thoughts on any of these topics. Please get in touch with us via the social media channels or the comment uh, functions uh, to have your two cents worth, and uh, we we may feature that in a future episode. I want to wrap things up with the things that caught your eye this week as time's getting away. And Julie, talking about mayors displaying leadership, there's a mayor in, in uh, Sydney, in the city of Blacktown, that caught your attention this week. That's right. Uh, Councillor Tony Bleasdale caught my attention on LinkedIn, um, leading the community charge against what he says is uh, appalling lack of infrastructure funding coming from the New South Wales government. Um, and particularly for a growing local government area. And he's um, gathered local residents together and um, voiced his uh, support to them in trying to get new facilities and more funding for those growth areas. So I think um, I think the, the issue of the capping, again, the rate capping up there and its impact, uh, saying that council's hands have been tied and it's becoming more and more difficult for them there to be able to deliver the services that are needed locally. So uh, my vote this week is for Councillor Tony Bleasdale at uh, Blacktown. OAM, if I'm not mistaken. OAM, that's yeah. right, yes. And uh, let's, not, uh, let's not lose sight of the fact that a lot of this has to do with the fact that New South Wales is going to elections next month. And, of course, councillors uh, are being very active with their yeah. advocacy. There's, there's one example of that. Tony, uh, we're going down to the southwest coast for the story that caught your eye this week about not the first council to be doing something about short-stay accommodation, but perhaps a slightly different approach from Warrnambool? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, down at um, Warrnambool City Council, um, a change to the local laws this week, media article about that. Um, as you say, not the first council to introduce annual charges for short-stay accommodation providers, in this case a $400 a year annual charge on top of rates. I think we've seen some similar um, charges at Frankston and Mornington Peninsula. Um, but also what caught my eye was um, an attempt in the local law to, um, to affect some behavioural change at those short-stay accommodation places in that um, there's a, a ban on the use of swimming pools, outdoor deckings, balconies between the hours of 11pm and 7am at short-stay accommodation. Um, I'm not sure how um, this would be um, policed, presumably by way of some 
fine or sanction that is um, it, the council um, levies upon the rate the ratepayer and the, you know the owner of the land. But um, interesting, and I think um, you know something that you know many councils are uh, struggling with at the moment is is you know a bit of community outrage about how these um, facilities operate and the loss of amenity for neighbours and um, interesting approach being taken by Warrnambool City Council. And of, and of course, the other angle that a lot of councils are talking about is uh, or at least trying to encourage owners of these properties to put those properties in the longer term rental market rather than the short stay. And there's obviously economic reasons why they're doing that. But we also have a housing crisis on at uh, at the That's moment. Correct. And councils mm -hmm. are trying all sorts of things to try and generate more supply in the housing market. Julie? It is interesting, Chris, because I just don't know practically how the council are going to be able to, uh, you know, enforce or monitor. Um, I, I suspect it'll have to be a reactive, you know, complaints come through, but you'd have to be there in the moment to be able to witness what has gone on, to be able to then take the action. So I don't know how it's going to work practically, but I can understand why the council have done that because there would have been a lot of pressure, no doubt, from the local community in terms of their amenity impacts. Um, I just don't know whether that's 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 the approach um, that would, you know, that's going to work so much from an enforcement point of view. But, you know, good on them, give it a try, see how it goes. It might open up, you know, opportunities for other councils to take up a similar, a similar um, approach. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll have to see how that. All how, right, how good that on Warrnambool, and and shout out to Andrew Mason, who's just started there as the new CEO at uh, at Warrnambool, and to Michael Tudball, who's just started as the interim at uh, Karangamite, where I see Ruth Gustrain has called a special meeting next week, the mayor, to uh, to finalise their formal position on the representation reviews. We talked about the challenges. I think that the first round councils are finding with the timing. Uh, with this. And here's a case where Karangamites had to call a special meeting so that they can reach a formal position before those submissions close on the 22nd of, of February. I've got one quick one, although this could lead to a longer discussion that we might have to park. My uh, story that caught my eye is out of uh, Queensland just in the last 24 hours, where the CEO of the Local Government Association of Queensland, Alison Smith, has been speaking to uh, MPs about proposed changes to the Electoral Act up there and defending the practice of councils running positive media stories during election periods in which council laws are, are featured. So the question was asked, is that not a misuse of ratepayers' money for an electoral purpose? And I'm paraphrasing there. She says no. She says uh, councillors there have operational responsibilities and as long as those stories are operational in nature and aren't specifically advocating for someone's vote, that that practice should be able to continue. You wouldn't be able to do that in Victoria. So I'm filing that, Tony, under our, our new file we opened last week, the they do things differently up there in Queensland file. That's right. I think it, to me to turn on, is there a special edition of the council newsletter that's come out during the election period or is it in just in the usual cycle? Um, because we don't want to, you know, favour um, yeah. the incumbent candidates. Um but yeah, really interesting. All right. Uh, any final thoughts from either of you before I wrap this up? We've been going for quite a while today. All good, Chris. Have a great week ahead, whatever you've got planned. I know you've been crisscrossing the state, Julie, and doing some wonderful work working with councils. And Tony, I'm sure you've got a mixed bag and you probably don't know what your week's going to look like from 
from day to day, do you? Oh, it's variety. It's a spice <laughs> of life, isn't it? Indeed. Well, yeah, variety is variety is great. I'm off to Manningham next week and up to Swan Hill again. So uh, look forward to another road trip. Excellent. All right. Well, we do appreciate having both of you on the program, sharing your insights on the news of the week from around the big, wide, wonderful world of local government. And I do want to say thank you uh, through you, Tony, to the team at Hunt and Hunt Lawyers for your sponsorship of uh, TGU. I've got to say, uh, I don't know whether it's this panel combination, but our, our viewership is growing. Uh, don't know what's going on there and listenership as well. So it's lovely to have all of you with us and we hope you'll keep joining us for TGU. Here from VLGA Connect. Until next time, bye for now.